right, you beautiful people. We're going to get started. Say this with me. Without faith, it is impossible. Come on. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we're talking about faith, and uh, we're looking at a few of the characters from the book of Genesis in particular. And last week we looked at Noah, right? I gave you a sci-fi version of Noah, right? We're kind of, we talked a little bit about some things that were kind of crazy. And, uh, but <laughs> anyway, today we're going to talk about Abraham. And the Bible has a lot to say about faith. We are in the Christian faith, right? Faith, say this with me, faith. Come on, faith is the currency of heaven. Say this with me. Heaven is not moved by human need. Heaven is moved by faith. God's not moved by human need. I know that makes people mad. All the feelers go, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Well, if you read your Bible and you understand what the context of everything the Lord did, you're going to see heaven didn't move anything. Human need didn't move anything. Faith moved him. Faith is what moves heaven. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for they that come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God doesn't recognize victimized prayers. God doesn't recognize you as a victim. God doesn't, in Christ, he doesn't recognize you as a sinner. Oh, Lord, here I stand before you, a sinner. The Lord's going to go, who are you? I don't know you. Oh, Lord, here I stand before you, a victim. Would you, could you, should you, if you're in a good mood, please look, look, look down on me. He doesn't recognize you either. Well, God recognizes you as in Christ, as a son or a daughter. That's how he recognizes you. He doesn't recognize you in any other posture other than the one that he has placed upon you. He doesn't recognize you weak. He sees you strong. Jesus sees you and calls you who and what you are long before you get there. In Christ, you're a son of the highest. It's an absolute fact. In Christ, you're daughters of the highest. You have a spiritual authority in this world and you will rule the one to come. Did you send in a resume for that? Nobody has that I know of, but Jesus gives it to you. He bestows it upon you for no other reason other than he wants to. He doesn't recognize you any other way. And so what faith does, faith moves heaven. When you stand and you say, I'm a son of the highest, whatever, uh, health, healing, prosperity, life is my inheritance in Christ. Today I take my rightful place and I lay claim to it. Heaven affirms that statement. Heaven affirms those grounds. When you go, oh, Lord, if you could please just see me. I'm just, you're in a good mood. And, oh, God, I'm just, you know, I'm just barely hanging on here. He doesn't recognize you as a victim ever. Victim prayers never get answered. So stop praying them. The prayers that get answers are the prayers of faith. And the prayers of faith are not, God, I believe you. The prayers of faith is, I am a son of the highest. That's faith right there. Right there. I am a daughter of the highest. That's faith right there. This is mine in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he said so. The covenant, the promises, the blessing, all of these things. That's faith. Taking your rightful position in faith. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews 11. Now faith is. So the first thing we see about faith, faith is present. Faith is in the now. Not Faith is not in the tomorrow. Faith is not in the yesteryear. Faith is in the now. And it says faith is the substance. That word substance is a Greek word called, say it with me. Come on, you guys are going to learn some Greek here. Say it with me. Hypo. Stasis, and it means legal ground. Faith is the legal ground. 
for things hoped for. Faith is the legal substance or the legal claim for things hoped for. What's hoped for? Christ is our hope. The promises of God are our hope. And by faith, we stand on the legal ground for what we have hoped for. We stand in the rightful place. You are heirs, guys. The bread is for the children. The promises belong to you. Who told you any different? Your father didn't. We exercise faith in the now towards the things that God has said we could have. And it produces the evidence of what is not seen. That's how it comes from this world, his world, into ours. Supernatural. Right? There's the natural world. That's our world. We're the natural world. And there's God's world, which is the supernatural. Right? The supernatural comes into the natural on earth as it is in heaven. Faith is a legal claim for what is hoped for. Abraham's an interesting person. I just want to kind of give you a little, little espresso shot of faith here. But then I want to talk to you about Abraham. Abraham is what would be called, a, he's called a meta-theme. A meta-theme means it's a theme, a person, a theme, or a teaching that's found throughout the Bible or is found in a very significant way. Abraham would be, without a doubt, considered a meta-theme. His life, his story, everything about him. Fifteen chapters of the Bible are devoted to Abraham alone. Fifteen chapters, right? Seventeen life episodes. The Bible gives us seventeen things in Abraham's life. It exposes seventeen things about Abraham. And if you know anything about the scripture, that's very rare that somebody's life that has highlighted in seventeen ways. Good, bad, and ugly. That's the thing about your Bible is Jesus doesn't hold, hide the good. He doesn't hide the bad. And he most definitely doesn't hide the ugly. God shows us that these people who walked with him, believed him, and achieved and uh, partnered with great things in the earth are people just like you. Broken people, messed up people, just like you. We think it's all saved, sanctified, holy, hallelujah. Those are the only people that God uses, are the saved and the sanctified and the holy, hallelujah. No, he uses broken people, just like you. He makes the dysfunctional functional. That's good news. I'm sorry. That's good news. Do you know why? Because all y'all, and that means me too, we're dysfunctional. You're dysfunctional. You cannot function. You, you, you can make it for a little while, but eventually the wheels come off, don't they? Wheels come off. <laughs> That's why your kids, when they say they don't need you anymore, you just look at your watch go, okay. <laughs> I don't need you. I can do it myself. I'm like, yeah, that'll make me. I don't give him 24 hours on that one. <laughs> 15 chapters, 17 life episodes. He's a meta theme. There's five groups. So of all of his life episodes, they're broken up into five groups. So this is a really cool thing. The first group is his family relations, in particular with his father. He had a father named Tara. You know what Tara means? Worldly. How'd you like to have a dad named Worldly? The word Tara means of the earth. So my dad is of the earth. So nothing real supernatural going on with him. His dad was actually an idol. He was an idol seller. He sold idols. So all the little gods and all the little trinkets and, you know, whatever paraphernalia that attached themselves to, the, to false worship, his old man was selling it. He was a purveyor in all things idol worshipful. All things idol worshipful, I guess, would be his thing. So the first five, the first grouping of Abraham's life was his dealings with his father, 
The second grouping is his dealings with culture. The third is his encounters with God. Then he has more interfacing with culture. And then the last part of Abraham's life is about his children and about ultimately his death. And there's some interesting things going on in this. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, kind of connect the points here a little bit. But just to give you an understanding of the time period where Abraham is. So it's important to understand context so you can understand what's going on here. This is in the Old Testament before Jesus. There's things called time periods. Say this word. I'm really going to give you guys are really going to walk out of here. You're going to feel really smart. You're going to learn some Greek, quote some verses. Now you're going to get a little theological term. Ready? Say it with me. Dispensation. All right. What is the word dispensation? We throw it around all the time. Dispensation. All the smart pastors run around going, oh, it's the dispensation of God. The dispensation of God. What is the dispensation? It means the way that God governs. The government of God in the earth. So God used, God governed or moved in the earth. It has nothing to do with his promises. It has to do with the mechanism by which he is ruling in the earth. In the, and when he created Adam and Eve, the dispensation or the age, the epoch, is called the age of innocence. So God's government was through a relationship with sons and daughters created by him who related to him in innocence. They looked in wide wonder at their father, and their father looked back at them in glowing love. That was how God ruled in the earth, was through that family relationship. Well, that didn't last long, did it, right? Okay. Adam and Eve left the reservation. They fell. We don't need you, Lord. We're our own God. Rah, rah, rah. Then all down goes the house. And that led to a period of really lawlessness, it's called, this age is called antediluvian. Say that with me. Antediluvian. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and what it means is the age before the deluge or before the flood. So Adam and Eve fall, then another age begins. And this was really, there was no government of God in the earth at all. It was literally lawlessness. Man did everything that was in their own heart. You know, you read the story in Genesis. All of this stuff happens. Then ultimately the flood came. We talked about that last week. And from after the flood, preceding or following the flood, so we have the age of innocence, then the, the period of lawlessness leading up to the, um, the, the flood. After the flood, God ruled through patriarchs. It's called the age of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anybody ever heard of them? Right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He led through families. So age of innocence, pre-flood, pre then he leads through families. And then ultimately, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had... There were 12 tribes of Israel, and again, everything was family-centric. So God's government in the earth was moving through families, patriarchal system of government. That's a system of rule and reign, okay? Then following the patriarchs came the law. Moses brought the law. The law is just a fancy word for way. The law, our word law, that word law, comes from a Hebrew word called Torah. If you translate the word Torah, it simply means the way of the Lord. That's what it means, the way. We translate it law, the law of God. Dare you defy the law of the Almighty, the law of God? Well, there's a problem with that. It's the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is holy, and we, we, we're fallen. We can't keep it. The law, of the, God, the law of the Lord can be summed up in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Anybody ever heard of that, God's top ten? Okay. We, have, we have preachers who teach, keep the Ten Commandments. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. Oh, I, I, drive my, I drive my pastor friends crazy with this. It's not all of them, but some of them, they go nuts. They're like, what do you mean we can't keep them? I'm like, you can't keep them. I'm like, how are you doing, bro? How are you doing keeping those Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, you can fool us on that one, but then maybe the second one. Let's go with that one. Have no idols before me. Not your car, not your job, not your bank account, not your marriage, not your children. Have no idols before me. What is an idol? A master passion. 
We all fall short on that one. We all lose, right? We can't keep it. In Christ, in the Spirit, you can keep the ten. The law is perfected. But the law was never given to be kept. When the Bible speaks of the law, it tells us it's a schoolmaster. Literally, it's a mirror. It shows you who you are. You think you're holy. You think you're righteous. You think you're acceptable to God. Have you ever lied? Anybody? Can I get a witness? Yes. Have you ever stolen? I've never stolen anything. Well, we already confessed you're a liar, so we know you're a liar. So the odds are you've stolen something too. And the Bible, the Bible says if you're guilty of the part, you're guilty of the whole. You have to keep the whole law or, you, or it's all, or it's all you, you fail. Guilty of the part, guilty of the whole. That's the rule. That's the way the law is constructed. The law was given to show man that he thinks he's righteous. Man thinks he's acceptable to God in his condition, and the law shows us we're not. We're not. Uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but the, you ever, anybody, some of you will know this, this the, the, the Portrait of Dorian Gray. Anybody ever heard of that book? Right? Uh, who's the guy that wrote that? Oh, his name is escaping me. Anyway, he was raised in a Christian home. He kind of left it, so a lot of the themes in that are Christian. And it's about a guy who gets a portrait, a really handsome dude who gets a portrait of him painted. And as he gets this portrait of him painted, he starts to live a wicked life. And he wills all of his wickedness into the painting so that he never ages. Nothing ever happens to him. But every time he does wickedness and every time he does evil deed, the painting begins to transform into the deeds and the actions that he is. And he becomes so disgusted with it, he begins to hide the painting away. And he, can, he hides it away and locks it and keeps it under a lock and key. And then one day he walks up there again and he sees who he really is. Disgusted with himself, and he takes a pair of scissors and he cuts the painting and he drops down dead. That's the story. Oscar Wilde, that's who wrote the book. Portrait of Dorian Gray. The law is our portrait of Dorian Gray. We think, oh, we're just, I'm so acceptable to God. I'm so righteous. I'm so holy. You know, God loves me at all times. Just be, you know, you know it's kind of like that idea. And the Bible tells you, you know, you're sinful. You cannot meet God's standard of your own accord. You cannot. It's futile. It cannot, be hap it cannot happen. The Bible says it's a schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus. The Bible also says the law shuts man's mouth. The law was not given for the humble. The law was given for the arrogant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They're already right there. Those who know they're screwed up, you know. <laughs> he goes to the broken and to the lowly, and he says, you're sinful you're broken, you're without God, you're knee and you're lost. And they look at him and go, we know, can you help us? And he says, the kingdom is near you. He goes to the religious elite, you're sinful, you're broken, you're lost, and you're without God. And they go, you have a demon and we want you dead. <laughs> That's the story. The law was never given for the humble. The law was never given for the contrite. The contrite know they're screwed up. Eh? There's a song that says the, the prostitutes love Jesus and the drunks propose a toast. And they, they mock him and they say his kingdom is a kingdom of paupers. His kingdom is a kingdom of simpletons and fools. <laughs> He's the God of the broken. All men are broken. The wise know it. The fool does not. It's the difference. The wise know they're broken. Doesn't matter what your intellectual level is, that's irrelevant. You can be super smart and be super humble. Or you can be super, 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 super lacking understanding and you can be super, you can even be worse than that and, not, and still be proud of heart and not, not believe you need Jesus. 
You need Jesus. So the law and the prophets was given, the, the idea of the law was given to show man that he's sinful. And into that comes the judges and the prophets. So it's the age of the judges and the prophets. This age of judges, really with the word judge, these are, these are translations that we've drawn into our English language that don't really reflect the meaning. The word judge means deliverer. And what would happen is, is the people couldn't keep the law. They'd drift, right? Like a, like a sheep getting lost in the mud. And they'd go, help, help. And God would have to send a deliverer to get the people out of the mud because they kept drifting, right? Deliverers. And then he gives prophets. The age, of the, the, the age of the prophets and the judges was the age of the seers where God would speak to them and talk to them. God, Israel was created to be a theocracy. They were created not to be ruled by an earthly king, but by a heavenly king. And God was going to lead them and minister to them through the judges and the prophets. So we have the age of innocence, the age before the flood, the age of the patriarchs, the age of the laws, age of the judges and the prophets. And I'm only saying this to give you context. We're in the church age. Anybody ever heard that? So God's rule, and God, God's rule and reign and his government in the earth is through the church. That's what he's doing in the earth. God's not ruling from Washington, D.C. He's not ruling from Moscow. He's not ruling from Havana. He's not ruling from Jerusalem. He will rule from Jerusalem, but he's not ruling from Jerusalem today. He's ruling through his church. God's government in the earth is through his people, in the church. To him be glory through the church. This is where, this is, where it is. We are his people. We are his body. So if the church doesn't partner with the government of heaven, nothing gets done. Well, if God wants to do something, he's going to do it. Not without his people. He's not doing, he doesn't do it for us. He does it with us. It's a divine partnership. We have a wrong paradigm. The one thing Jesus confronted more than anything among these people that he encountered was their thinking. Their thinking was wrong. Their thinking was off. And so he was constantly confronting the way that they thought. They thought they, th they would think among earthly planes. And they, he, Jesus was teaching them to think from heaven to earth. One of the classic examples is family. We think, we're all, we think our family is our natural family. Your family is not your natural family. In Christ, look around. This is your brothers and sisters. This is heaven's, this is heaven's economy. right? This is the way God created it. Brothers and sisters in the house of God, born not of an earthly bloodline, but of a heavenly bloodline. So we need to relate to each other more on those terms and less that way. You're going to see Abraham separate. God tells Abraham to separate himself from his family. Some of you, the best thing you can do is separate yourself from your dysfunctional family. It, this is a hard saying in, in particularly Miami where it's very Latin driven. We're very family centric. They're my family. They're crazy. I know, but they're my family. They're toxic. I know. I know they're my family. Every time they get around you, they train wreck you. I know, but they're my family. Jesus said, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sisters? Who are they? Who is my family? Those who do the will of God. Exactly. Those who do the will of God. Those who hear the word of God and do it. And what's interesting about this, I love this story, because the Virgin Mary was at the door. They came in there and go, Jesus, stop what you're doing. Mary is at the door. And Jesus didn't get up and go, the Virgin Mary is at the door? Hold the phone. And he didn't run. He just said, let her wait. That's basically it. Let her wait. Let her wait. I'm with my mother. I'm with my brothers. I'm with my sisters. I'm with, my, I'm with them right now as we speak. That's heaven's mindset. That's heaven's mindset. That's what's called a culture shock to people. Jesus had no problem culture shocking people. There's the kingdom culture, which is his world. There's the world's culture, which is the one we live in. And then there's the church culture. One culture is right, two of them are wrong. The church culture oftentimes works against the kingdom culture. 
It works against God's intentions. We create religious paradigms, religious thinking, religious teachings, religious structures that are actually opposite of what God wants. Opposite. Attitudes, actions, all kinds of nonsense. We, Jesus said, by your traditions, you make the word of God powerless. Church culture. Some of you have had some bad experiences with church culture. Some people are like, this is the only church I've ever known. Good for you. And I'm not saying there's not good churches out there. I'm not saying that at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm pro-church. I'm for the church. But, I, but I've, been in the, I've been in it for a while. Religious people tend, tend to not like really like connect here sometimes because they don't feel like we're religious enough. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can, can, I, can, I, can I get that on video? Can, you, can, I, can I just video you telling us that we're not a non-religious church? Jesus didn't come for religion. He came for revolution. He came for transformation, a transformation of love. He didn't come to start an assembly. He came to start a movement. That's what he came for. He offended the religious people to the right and to the left. He offends religious people to this day. I get people on Facebook. They tell me, you know, you need to wear a suit, Pastor. Be more pastoral. You know, I say, why don't I wear, why don't I wear sandals and a, and a robe, and I'll be more biblical. That's what I probably should wear. You know, if we're really, if we're really going there, you know. And it's not, it's not, about, it's not about the dress or the attire. It's not, about, it's not about that. It's about the effect and the relationship that we have one to the other. And so Abraham is in the age of the patriarchs. So if you want to frame where Abraham is in the timeline of God, so he's in this age right here. So it's at the age, man has fallen, the flood has happened, and now we're in the age of the patriarchs. So this is before Moses. This is the age that he's in. Abraham brought about justification by faith. Anybody ever heard that term? Justification by faith. Theological phrase. But the meaning is this, you are justified, made right with God by faith. No work of your own. You put faith in what Christ did, and you, God, you are justified. That's not a Christian teaching. That's a Bible teaching. The Bible tells us about Abraham, which is Old Testament. Jesus is New Testament. Abraham is Old Testament. The Bible says about Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. The Jewish people today believe that they're justified by the works of the law. No one can ever be justified by the works of the law. That's my point. The law can justify no one. The law actually shows us our state and points us to Jesus. This is who you are. And then we're supposed to look in the mirror and go, that's me? Man, where do I get fixed? And they're going to go, right over there, Jesus. Jesus Incorporated. Restoration 24-7. Right over there. Restoration and renewal 24-7. Abraham is the father, is the first one who believed God, and God said, that's righteous to me. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for actions. I'm not looking for deeds. I'm looking for someone who actually believed me for what I'm saying. That's what makes you right. We're right to Christ. You, when you give your life to Jesus, you can't screw it up if you wanted to. That's, again, hard to believe. That's hard to believe. If you are truly born again and you are truly converted, not with your mind but with your heart, you cannot lose it. That's hard. People don't want to believe that. They want to believe that they watch an R-rated movie, they got to come to the altar and repent again. Who told you that? There's two types of sins in the Bible. Very, it's important to understand this. Greek, harmatio and harmatano. Harmatia is to offend and to push God away. That's the sin of condemnation. When you come to Christ, that sin is removed from you, that state, that state of sin. Right? And the Bible tells us clearly in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever. It's an active tense word. You cannot be condemned, not now, not ever. Why? Because harmatia has been removed, but Christians still sin. Can we agree? Right? Can we agree? 
Right? We know you're a liar, so I know we already confessed we were liars. We were, we were there. I'm with you. I'm a liar, too. I was born a liar. I get it. I understand. I had to confess all that. I had to bring, you know, change my style, all that good stuff. <laughs> but Christians still sin. We do. But those are sins not under condemnation. Those are sins that pull us away from destiny. You're created on purpose with a purpose. You have a destiny. In Christ, you come to Christ, you come into your destiny. You come into the potential of your destiny. All people are created with a destiny. But they can never, you, can't even be, you can't even have the potential of destiny until you come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, now you've, reached the, you've at least been given the fullness of potential to reach it. And now your choices and your alignment with God's purpose in your life determines the course of your destiny. When you choose against that course, it's called a sin, a harmatano. It means to miss the mark. There's a guy here is in the Navy. One of the things that they, the ancient Greeks would call is the compass was wrong. So to miss the mark means if your compass is two degrees off, you're not going to make port. Over a long distance, that two degrees takes you way off course. Way off course. You can't be condemned. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Either that's true or we need to throw out the book of Romans. It's not, there is therefore now no condemnation, but it's there is therefore now, right now, and if you read the Greek and how that's structured, it's, it's, it's an eternal word. It's ongoing. Not now, not ever. Not now, not ever. Not now, not ever. It's a moment by moment by moment. Nothing you can do. So some of you, you need to free yourself from guilt and shame. God loves you on your worst day. He knew you couldn't do it. That's why he gave you his spirit. He has no confidence in you. I love that. We, we believe the Lord speaks. One of the things God spoke to me is, Kevin, I don't have any confidence in you. How'd you like to hear that one? Okay. I'm praying. I'm asking the Lord. And he's like, he's like I have no confidence in you. I was like, what? Okay, I'm like, all right. And he goes, but I have full confidence in my spirit in you. God doesn't have any confidence in you, so give it up. The, 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 the way you do this is you partner with his spirit. You draw strength. His strength is perfected in your weakness. You get it? That's how the stuff is played. That's how the game is played. You cannot access your strength until you understand you don't have it. And then when you realize you don't have it and you don't have the ability, you begin to draw it from him. On earth as it is in heaven, you begin to be, uh, let the power of God move in you, and you begin to get the wisdom that comes from on high. You begin to get the strength that comes from on high. You begin to get the courage that comes from on high. And you'd be shocked how readily available that is to you. You'd be shocked. Some of you start accessing the wisdom of God, and you're going to be like, I'm a genius. You're going to think you're a genius. Some of you, you access the courage of God, and you're going to feel so bold and so courageous when you're in the Spirit. Because you're accessing the strength. You're accessing what's available to you in the Spirit. You can't do it. You need to free yourselves of that. Anybody that tells you different doesn't know what they're talking about. Try harder. Ooh, try harder. Sherry and I come from churches that tell you, just try harder. Oh, you don't really want it. If you wanted it, you'd try harder. You need to recite these verses a little more. Well, if that worked, we'd all be free, wouldn't we? I know guys that can shoot it like a machine gun. They can fire verse, chapter and verse. But emotionally undeveloped undeveloped, spiritually undeveloped, but oh man, they're full of knowledge. They got all the knowledge in the world, but they have no, they have no, they have no character, they have no fortitude, they have no, they're lacking the very substance of things that are necessary. Those things come only from the Spirit of God through, through practice and discipline and humility. Abraham was born in a place, born in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It's modern day Iraq, if you're familiar with that region. Ur sat on the Persian Gulf. So the Gulf of per the Persian Gulf comes right at the base, or it goes more like this, at the base of Iraq, and Ur sat right at the end of Iraq on the, on the water. They've discovered Ur. It's about 60 miles inland. You say, well, why is it 60 miles inland? Because the Persian Gulf has been silted, and so the land has extended over time. But they have found the city of Ur 
They found homes that are two-story villas that rival Renaissance Italian homes. There's a huge archaeological dig going on there. Their religion, they worship the sun, moon, and stars. So these are all people worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. Abraham's father was a seller of idols. He lived there. History teaches us that Abraham's father sequestered Abraham. In other words, he did, Abraham did not have a lot of interaction with culture. He didn't. He was kind of sequestered. He stuck with his father. His father you know, kept him close by and all this stuff. So when Abraham actually did start to interact with culture, a lot of his interactions were dysfunctional because he didn't know what he was doing. And the only mirror that he had was the mirror of his father. And well, his dad's worldly and an idol seller. So how, how healthy is that? Not, not really. So he lived a sequestered life. Stephen says this in the book of Acts. He says, hear me, brethren. With, with, I'll just give you the summary of the verse because it just doesn't really lay this out. But what it's telling us is in Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to Abraham in a city called Haran. But what Stephen is telling us in the book of Acts is that God spoke to Abraham before he spoke to him in Haran when he was still in Ur. So in other words, God, he's living in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans with his dad, and the Lord spoke to him and told him, get out of your father's house, get away from this culture, get away from everything that you know, and I want you to come and follow me. Well, Abraham didn't do it first time around, right? You say, wow, that sounds like me. You know, happy day, right? So Abraham didn't obey the Lord the first time around. Why? He was afraid, more than likely. And he was comfortable with the familiar. For us, a lot of times we don't obey God because we're familiar, that we're, we're more comfortable with the familiar than we are in the unknown. And so it's better to cling to the familiar than to reach for the unknown. God's not in the familiar, Christian. The, mo the mountain, the, the fire moved, right? Wasn't static. God was, if you read how Jesus did, he was always taking people into the unfamiliar and into the unknown. Abraham didn't listen the first time. He wasn't perfect. Abraham grew up in a dysfunctional family. Sound like anybody here? Right? Not me. Okay. All my kids are Harvard graduates. Okay. All right. No problem. No matter how outwardly you appear, I'm going to tell you, inwardly, all families are dysfunctional. Because all people are dysfunctional. The only way we have any functionality at all is through Jesus Christ. The only way. It's true. Watch people who serve nothing but themselves over a period of time. It doesn't happen in their 20s. It doesn't happen in their 30s. But watch people fall apart when they get in their 40s and 50s every single time. Godless people fall apart, get weird, get stupid, get goofy, do all kinds of train wreck things. Because what happens is that sin over time corrupts. And you can no longer contain the corruption. When you're 20, it looks like immaturity. When you're 40 and 50, it looks like absolute stupidity, foolishness, or just we don't even know what that is. That's what it looks like. The only way we can ever be functional is through Jesus alone. That's the only help or hope any of us ever have. And he saves to the uttermost. He gives emotional, he gives emotional support, emotional healing. He gives physical healing. He gives spiritual healing, relational healing. God's the answer. Jesus is the answer to everything. Not in an abstract way, but an up-and-close personal way. God appears, to Jesus, God appears to Abraham in the midst of the idols. In the middle of all of the idols, God appears. In the, middle of all, in the middle of Abraham's dysfunctional family, God shows up. That's what he does. He walks into a window of a world that worships everything. And he says, anybody want anything different? He walks into families that are absolutely shot out, broken, and dysfunctional on every level. You all are. 
Trust me, I've tried to be functional and I've tried to be holy. I know how impossible it is. It is. I've been all in on this thing from the get-go. And I know. And the Lord's like, yeah, go ahead and try, Kevin. Go ahead and try. Go ahead. Yeah, get it. Go on out there. Yeah. You think you got it? Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Go, go. I got this marriage thing, Lord. Woo! I got it. Yeah. How that long is that going to last? Not long. <laughs> I had a married couple go, we've been married six months. And I don't like it when you talk about how all families are dysfunctional because in our six-month marriage, we don't really see any dysfunction. I'm like, come back to me in six years and let me know. Tell me how that's working out for you. <laughs> it's true. It's totally true. It's okay. Jesus is okay with your dysfunction. I'm okay with mine. I'm okay with it. It doesn't mean I'm going to stay that way. It doesn't mean I like take a bath in my dysfunction, but I'm all right. All right, I'm screwed up there. Okay, this is where I got to deal with. I got these areas that I need to grow in. I need to deal with. I need to understand. I need to get better at. I need to get more humble. I need to transform. That's, that's how it works. He's okay with you being that way. You cannot be self-condemning. Self-condemnation is not of God. There's no condemnation. So any voice of condemnation that speaks over you, any voice ever that speaks condemnation over you is not of the Lord. It's a lie of the devil or it's an incepted lie that, you have, that has been bound into you by some experience or some trauma or some pain. You believe a lie and that lie rules you. There's no condemnation, none whatsoever at any time, ever. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. As a Christian, I sin. It doesn't condemn me, but it most definitely doesn't profit me. So it's true. Sin has no pleasure when you become a believer. It's a difference, right? I don't want to talk about some of my experiences because my wife's like, you're a pastor and you're leader of the church. You need to present yourself a little differently. <laughs> I talk about all the raw, crazy experiences I've had. And then when I, tried, when I became a believer, if I even started to do any of that stupid stuff again, it was not the same. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It was not the same. The, whatever, the joy was gone out of it. Difference between... How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, when you get in trouble, do you cry out? Or when you get in trouble, do you roll around in it? It's the difference between sheep and pigs. That's, how, that's really how it's put that way. When you're born again, you're a sheep. When a sheep gets in the mud, they cry out, don't they? Nah, nah, help me. When a pig gets in the mud, they're like, oons, 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 oons. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an issue of if we get in the mud. We're all going to end up in the mud in some stupid choice or action or something falls out of the sky. Something's going to happen and we're going to get in the mud. But are you crying out or are you rolling in it? If you're rolling in it, you need to go, am I actually saved? Because I don't know if I should be having this feeling while I'm in this sick condition. Anyway, Abraham didn't listen the first time around. He went with his father to a city called Haran. You know what Haran means? Mountain of delay. <laughs> he went with his worldly father to a mountain of delay. <laughs> That's what happens when we don't obey the Lord. Here's what happens. God gives you, God tells you to do something, and we don't have the courage to do it. Or God tells you to do something, and we prefer the familiar, because that's unknown to us. He will give you another opportunity, but you will delay. You cost yourself time, ladies and gentlemen, when you don't obey the Lord. Time will come around again, but Abraham had to wait for the wheel of time to turn again. And then when Abraham, when, when his father died, and he's at the mountain of delay, the Lord reminded Abraham in Genesis 12, remember what I told you? I told you, get you out of your father's house from your country, from your father's land, to a place I will show you. And then he makes promises over Abraham that Abraham didn't deserve. Look at the promises God speaks over him. 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's nothing that Abraham did to deserve that blessing at all. Nothing at all. God just bestowed it upon him. It's the same, thing he, same way he treats you. He bestows blessings upon you. You don't deserve it at all. You're the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath. I don't feel like it. Well, because you don't, you're not standing in your hypostasis. You're not standing in your legal authority. And you're not standing and declaring. And you're not commanding that which is not the mountain to move and the circumstances to change. If you have faith as but a grain of mountain, mustard seed, Jesus said, you can say to the mountain, what mountain stands in your way? Stand in your place of hypostasis on your legal ground. You're a son of the highest. God has given you the ability to obtain wealth that you might establish this covenant in the land. You have an ability. God will provide for you in season and out of season. The young, I've been young and I've been old. The righteous will never be forsaken or the seed begging for bread. God will give nations for your ransom. Lord, I need a job. Lord, I need this. I declare in the name of Jesus that the nations be ransomed for me. And the opportunity come to me to provide for me. The bread belongs to the children. Try it out. Try it out. Some unbeliever will get fired and you'll get the job. Oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. There's nothing fair about favor, Christian. God, what do you think it means when God gives the nations for ransom? He'll take another's place and give it to you. He'll take the contract from a non-believer and give it to his son and daughter. That's not fair. There's nothing fair about favor. The sons and daughters of God bear the favor of God, period. And we just get, oh, we don't want to play all nice. Oh, I don't know. I just don't want, you know, that greedy Marianne. I, I mean, I know she's greedy and she's corrupt and everything, but, you know, I don't, I'd feel bad if she lost that contract and it was given to me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I used to feel that way until I learned the Lord would teach me, you're dishonoring me. I'm offering you something. I'm giving you something. And you, in your false humility, are to deny, oh, no, Lord, far be it from me. Oh, no, God, I, I couldn't possibly take that. Do you know who he is? He's a generous God. He's an abundant God. And he's a willing God. He told the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask. The fact, Christian, you don't ask, you don't know who he is. You don't know who he is. And he'll leave you in that state. He's not, the, he's not trying to convince you of anything. You want to believe he's not, you're not worthy? You want to believe he doesn't want to bless you? You want to believe he doesn't have anything for you? He'll leave you there. But when you begin to understand who he is and you begin to ask, you will begin to see the things that belong to you. You have not because you ask not. And in the asking, God will give you wisdom. Lord, I want a promotion. You do? Yeah, show up on time. That's how it works. But I didn't know, well, yeah, yeah that, that has nothing to do with me getting a promotion or a better job. Yeah, it has everything to do with it. You can't even show up on time at the job you have. You want a promotion? No problem. I've got one for you. Show up on time. We get all flustered and all like, oh, my gosh, I don't know, you know. That couldn't be the Lord. I rebuke you, devil. <laughs> it's exactly the Lord. Lord, grant me the opportunity. And he's going to show you. I've given you 13, and you've denied every one of them. The question isn't whether or not I want to give you opportunity. The question is, is why won't you take the ones I've given you? Oh, no, no, no. We couldn't possibly want to look at ourselves. We don't want to look at ourselves and try to look at ourselves and try to understand why we lack courage. We could, oh, no, no. If God wanted me to have it, I would have it. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. You don't have it because he provided the opportunity and you lack the courage to step into the opportunity. You have the fear of man. You have the fear of change. You are comfortable with the familiar. Let's just get real here. This is why it didn't happen. 
The problem's with you, never with Jesus. Never. Or you ask him for something, and he gives you a series of steps towards it, and you won't even take the first one. And because you, it doesn't make sense to you. I don't understand. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. He, I asked him for this, and he told me to do this. What does this have to do with that? I don't understand what this has to do with that, so I'm not doing that. You'll never get it. Sometimes he gives you an obscure instruction to see if you're actually going to obey him. And sometimes the picture is, is you don't understand that this step leads to this step leads to this step leads to this step, which brings you to the place that you need to be. But because we don't understand it, and there's no guarantee. Well, I'll, I'll do it if God guarantees. There's no guarantee, Christian. There's no guarantee. The only guarantee is if you don't quit. There's no guarantees attached to it. You may step out in this and you may fail because in the failure, God's going to train you to do something different the next time. He's going to show you you were arrogant. God will immediately present you a choice that he knows you're going to make because you're arrogant. Oh, I don't believe that. Absolutely. He'll let you put your head right in a noose in order for you to understand that you have a Harvard pride in your heart. And when you understand, how did I end up here, Lord? You told me to do this. And he's like, yep, I told you to do this. Why did you tell me to do this, Lord? I'm over here and I don't understand why. Because you have arrogance in your heart. And you refuse to see the arrogance in your heart. And now that the circumstances come upon you, now all of a sudden you're humble. It's amazing how circumstances humble us, isn't it? It's amazing. Life is the great equalizer. And you walk with Jesus. Jesus doesn't pat the pride of man. He strikes the arrogance. The law was never given for the humble. It was given for the proud. And a lot of times, our ego, our pride, is the one that's right in the way. It just is. So God will say, I want this, and then the Lord will go, here's the opportunity. And you go, no, I want that. And the Lord will go, don't do that. And you go, I want that. And then he'll go, okay, go ahead and have that. And you need to step into it. And then he'll go, have we learned anything here, Kevin? What have we learned? Have we learned anything? My ego was overriding you. I thought I knew better. I have, I've learned these lessons the hard way. The hard way. I tell people all the time, I will save you years, years, years. If you want to pursue destiny, I will save you years, years. I'll give you a real simple principle. You want one? Anybody want one? You need to write these things down. They're important. Number one, well, I'll give you a couple of them. Number one, say this with me. When in doubt, always honor the Lord. It's not even an issue of obedience. It's an issue of honor. Always honor him. Number two, you ready for this one? Ready? Hold the chair. Say this. I have no good ideas. The only good idea I have is Jesus and what he says. That right there is a chunk of gold. I just gave you a brick. You don't have any good ideas, so stop telling yourself you do. I'll tell you how I work it. I get a great idea. I begin to pray, and I feel like God's giving me an idea. I take the idea, and I present it back to him. I'm like, what do you think of this? And I let him return it back to me. It's a communal effort. This is where I'm at now. This is where I'm at in my life today. I was never always that way. I'd be like, oh, I have an idea. Forward I would go. Sometimes I'd succeed. Most often I fail. And the critics on the sideline would go, what a fool he is. And you know why I'm a fool? Because they wouldn't even get out of the chair and try anything. Most people are bound by the fear of failure. Bound by the fear of failure but they feel the right to sit as critics of those who try. Who's the fool? I always tell them, you can call me a fool, but you'll never call me a coward. Which one are you? I'm sorry, I'm the fool? You're the, you, so if I'm a fool, then you would be a what? Oh, a coward. Oh, okay. Which one is despised in God's eyes? Not the fool, the coward. Not the fool in the context of trying. 
The person who tries daringly is never despised of God, but the coward is absolutely lowly esteemed. The cowardly, Jesus condemns the cowardly over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. So if you're a coward, you need to do business with your cowardice. You need to deal business with the place where you are a coward, where you will not obey the Lord and you're too fearful or you're too afraid. You need to crucify the coward. I'm serious. Call me a fool all day long. I don't have a problem with it, but you'll never call me a coward, and I'm all right with that. I stand before the Lord pure because I'm not a coward. <laughs> what I've done is I've learned through the process. Learning through the process. We think that if, here's the thing. Here's, what, here's why most Christians don't try, because the church stands and goes, well, if God was in it, brother, it would have succeeded. If God wanted you to have it, it would have worked out. Or here's, the, here's my favorite one. If God was really in it, Kevin, it wouldn't be this difficult. Really? God would never send you into a difficult situation. I'm like, have you read your Bible? Have you read your Bible? Have you read your Bible? <laughs> How many times God put people in famine? How many times God sent the disciples across the river into a storm? He sent them ahead of him. God, never, don't get ahead of the Lord. He sent them ahead of him. He waited, and he sent his disciples ahead of him. So I don't know where they get that. Don't get ahead of the Lord. We don't want to get ahead of the Lord here. He, he constantly sent his disciples ahead. He sent them into a storm. The Bible says they rode all night and the wind was contrary. You don't think Jesus knew they were going into a storm? He waited until their strength was exhausted and he met them on the water. You guys, we did? We good? We good? How we doing, huh? How's the effort working out here? You know, that's how it works. That's how it works. He'll let you row until you got nothing more. To, nothing more. You need me now? No, Lord, I think I got a little more in me. I think I got a little more in me. Faith requires devotion, that you leave everything. This is Abraham. You leave everything behind and everything you know, and you bind yourself to the Lord. And here's the big piece. Say this with me. Listen to no other voice above the Lord's. It doesn't mean you don't listen to other voices in a sense that where you don't listen to other opinions and things like that, but you don't value anything above what God says. His voice alone rules you. Fear does not rule you. The voice of fear, that is a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. Condemnation is a voice that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. That is a voice that tells you you're not worthy, that tells you you're not accepted. Fear says, you don't know, it might happen, you might fail. Oh, you better be careful with this. The Lord says, it, whatever God says, it's not to be trumped by anything. The Lord's influence is to not be diminished by anyone or anything. It's actually the essence of the gospel. Jesus preached this message and 350 people left. When didn't we teach this today? When's the last time you heard this? I can't remember the last time I heard anybody teach Matthew 10, at least from any of the modern people that, you know, the modern churches. You know what it says? If you love your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. What? If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. What? If you don't take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. you got to be kidding me, man. He who finds his life in me will lose it. But he who loses his life in me will find it. It's an all-or-nothing faith. And you know what you're going to point out? The, the issue with Jesus really establishes here is he says, you're not worthy of me. You have no discernment who's inviting you. The king of all glory invites you to follow him. And you hold anything back? The king of all glory calls you to himself and invites you. And you go, 
Well, I honor this. He said, if you, don't, if you cannot discern who I am and you cannot discern who's calling you, you're not worthy of me. Not worthy. That's an insanely powerful statement. You're not worth the effort. I just don't think Jesus would ever talk like that, Pastor. I just don't think he ever would. He's a great king, people. He's a great king. He's not the big man upstairs and your buddy and your friend. We have a relationship with him through Father, but if you don't understand lordship, you don't understand anything at all. That's right. He's the king of kings. And the, king, and the Lord is the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord, king, Lord of lords. He's the king. He told the people in Malachi, and the people of Malachi were playing patty cake with him. God doesn't have a problem playing patty cake with you. If you but he wants you to operate in basic obedience. Okay, you got this? Basic obedience opens up everything else. But if you want to just kind of play with him and you can't follow a simple set of instructions or actually operate with a level of basic obedience and honor, then nothing else happens. He told the people in Malachi, and that was all they were doing. They were just kind of going, oh, yeah, God upstairs. Yeah, the big man. Patty cake, patty cake, baker's man. You know, going to church. Woo, you got to go to church. Yeah, we did our thing. Then they go off and do whatever they want. And the Lord told them, I'm a great king, and I'm deserving of honor. And if you will not honor me, I will find a people who will. That's what he told them. And that echoed Jesus. Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the what? The rocks are going to cry out. The rocks are going to cry out. That's what he tells them. God is worthy of your honor, people. The gospel, Jesus doesn't invite you to play patty cake. Christianity is a lifestyle. It's not what we do, it's who we are. And if you have an issue with it being who you are, then you need to do business with yourself and say, what is my major malfunction? Why do I have an issue with the gospel being my lifestyle? Why do I have an issue with the kingdom being my lifestyle? Why do I have an issue with Christianity being my lifestyle? That, the issue is yours. The issue's not his. And you need to confront the traitor and the dysfunction within you in order that you can be healthy. This is what the Bible talks about. Cut your arm off, pull your eye out. That's what it's talking about. Confront the issues within you that are preventing you from doing what God has called you to do. Whatever gets in the way, get rid of it. So if you have an issue with Christianity being a lifestyle, and you're like camo Christian, you know, don't want anybody to know. You know, back in the day, we used to have to carry our Bibles to church. Remember that? Anybody remember that? Right? Family style, bringing it in in a wagon. Yeah, big old Bible kind of thing, right? People carried their Bibles to church. And there'd be Christians hiding it under their coat. You know, I don't want anybody to see. Oh, oh hey, Steve, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you at the office tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, huh? What, why, do you, why are you ashamed of him? He wasn't ashamed of you. I hung open and naked and for you. Why are you ashamed of him? Why do you esteem others higher than him? Why do you give your glory, your gold? He's more worthy than Apple computers, people. He's more worthy than that iPhone you carry. He's more worthy than that car you drive and that house you live in and your dreams and your hopes and your visions and your desires. He's more worthy than anything else in this world. There's no one more worthy than Jesus. No one. It's true. Come on, you can give him glory. What the, what the gospel in the church needs today is we need to understand this is all in. It's all in. It, Christianity does not work for people who play at it. It doesn't work 50-50, it doesn't. The Christian who tries to do this kind of in and out, in and out, oh, the kingdom doesn't work. Jesus, I tried Jesus, I tried him. Jesus didn't work for me. I tried him, I tried him. I don't know the concept of trying Jesus. I don't know that. I, I never knew that. I understood the gospel meant I gave my life. My life and your life is no longer yours. It is an exchange, not of words, but your life. My life for his life. 
and now he lives and moves in me. Who gets the better deal? We do. We have to discern who he is. Faith requires courage. Abraham went out not knowing where he's going. Abraham had to follow instructions without having a full set of instructions. Go on and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Where are we going? I don't know. The Lord just said, go that way. Take that step. We have to be willing to take steps even if we don't have all the answers. There's no, he's not going to give you the full picture. He's going to give it to you and guarantee. He's not going to give you guarantees. What I've learned, I'm just going to share with you from my experience. In the beginning, God would give me no answers at all except a step. That would be it. As I've grown in my faith, as I've developed in my faith, now what the Lord will do is he'll show me a vision. And he'll show me, this is what we're going to do, Kevin. And I'll be like, okay, how are we getting there? And he'll go, do that. And I've learned that usually the first two or three steps are going to be off-center from what he told me. They're going to make no sense at all. Every time. Every time. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. He's going to tell you, I want you to do this. And you're going to go, okay, we're going to do that. That's what we're going to do. He gives me a little bit more information. He's going to give you more information over time. One of the things you're going to realize, too, when you work with the Lord and you begin to relate with the Lord, is God actually is going to commune with you more the more you, 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 you work with him and you're trustworthy to him. When he looks at you and you can prove obedience to him, he knows, okay, I'm working with someone. So then he's going to start dialoguing with you. But he doesn't dialogue on the level of, what do you want to do? What are you thinking? You know, like, I get that from him all the time. I know I go back to him. I know he tells me this. I'm like, okay, this is what's in my heart, Lord. What do you think? And he'll go, what do you want? I mean, we have this conversation that goes on. And, I mean, I haven't seen everything come to pass yet, but everything he has promised me, has, even stuff that's been years ago, I see manifesting now. Yes. Now. Yes. Stuff he promised me years ago. And I'm standing here going, what? Years ago. Because the one who promises you is faithful. Yes. He's faithful. And the thing that happens when you work with him and you relate to him is he starts a dialogue with you. He'll dialogue with you. Whereas before, he's operating with you on commandment. Then he's, now he's going to operate with you on relationship. Most Christians can't follow a simple set of instructions. A simple set. Saul lost his kingship because he, could, he didn't lose his salvation, but he lost his position because he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. Stand on the hill, Saul, and wait for Samuel until he comes. Don't do anything, Saul. Stand on the hill and wait for the prophet. He couldn't do that. <laughs> and that was like the third time that he couldn't do God gave him a simple set of instructions of one plus one equals two. Okay, can we do that, Saul? What's one plus one? One plus one is two, Lord. Great. Do that. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. We have to learn to follow a simple set of instructions. Then the relationship becomes more communal. And then when we learn to follow instructions without having all the answers... You don't have all the answers. You don't have all the provision, right? There's the comfort zone, the destiny zone. I'm, I'll, I'll skip past that. You guys want me to hit that? I don't know. I'm running out of time. I'm totally out of time. I got a couple more points. So don't tell me. Don't tell me yes because I'm gonna skip it. You gonna skip it? Yes, I'm gonna skip it. Now, now, faith requires embracing a calling. You have a calling. That's important. What does that calling look like? Every believer has a calling. The heart of the calling is to expand the kingdom. That's the heart of a calling. What does that look like? That means bringing glory to the Father and creating the common good, creating the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like. That's a generic understanding. So what does it mean? So if you're a parent, some people in their lives, they're called to be a parent. This is the season of the life that you're in. Your life is very limited when you're a parent. I don't know if anybody here is a parent, okay, with children. You're very, you're very limited. 
I, fortunately, am emerging from that season of my life, and my wife or both and I are saying hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. So we're coming out of that. We're leaving that behind. That season, that epoch, that, that dispensation is leaving. <laughs> but what happens, so you're a parent, so you can do certain things, but you're going to be limited and restricting because kids have needs and demands upon you, depending also on the age of the kid. So what is your calling at that time of your life? Your calling is to be a parent. So what, is your part, what, is your, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to expand the kingdom within the heart of your children. That's what God's expecting you to do. Well, how do you do that? Most of your parents here today, you bring them to church. That's, that's a huge step. But it's also integrating your faith in your household, talking to your kids about it, you know, even showing them your flaws. Mommy, you yelled at that person. I know. Jesus says you shouldn't yell at that person. I know. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. And you, 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 you bring them into the conversation. You let them see you living Jesus. People wonder they can't come to church, and then they wonder why their kids don't go to church. Because you never took them to church. Your kids come around. They go through seasons. They're like waves. They go through seasons. They ride around. They go through seasons. You have to let them ride. Business, if some of you are in business, what's the call of God on your life in business? To build the kingdom with ethics and mandates. So when, you're, when you have a business, you're to build that business with kingdom ethics, and you're going to build that business according to kingdom mandates. That business is not all about corporate profits. It's not about profit and losses. God gives you wealth to establish the covenant. God gives you wealth to establish the kingdom. I tell people all the time, you want a business? You want God to bless your business? I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to tell you how. I've shared with you guys stories a couple times. There was a guy here who wanted a million-dollar contract. He got it in 18 months. He got almost $900,000 in contracts. I told him, begin to tithe from your personal and begin to tithe from your business. And begin to present it before the Lord that, Lord, this business belongs to you. I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and I'm believing you for X amount of money. And when you give me X amount of money, I'm going to do X amount of things. But I'm going to be faithful even in the little so that when I'm entrusted with much. And you begin to tell that. You don't think God wants people to fund his, his kingdom? The problem is, is he can't get it through half of us. He'll give it to you if he can get it through you. That's the point. Say, what, I'm supposed to personally tithe? Am my business is supposed to tithe? Yes, absolutely. I've watched this at least three times with people. Three different business people. Three different ones. And I watched them go from here to here. And what happens, not one has, stay, has stayed faithful. Because they go from 500000 to a million two in business. And, whoa, I can't tithe on that. Oh, no, good God Almighty. No, 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 no. I can't tithe on that. Our net was $750,000. There's no way I can give $75,000 of this business to the Lord. No way. And you know what happens? They begin to drift. And the, and the business begins to dissipate. And the business begins to, flaw, fill, flaw, uh, begins to falter. And things begin to happen within their own lives. They begin to wane. Because what happens is, is you're telling God one thing, and he gives it to you. And then you get there, and you can't honor what you committed to. You can't honor it. He'll give it to you if he can get it through you. There's multi-million dollar business people in the kingdom that know this principle well. And they give lavishly lavishly. I know a guy, he's an older guy now, he's in his, probably in his 80s. He, God built a business with him and he told the Lord what he wanted. He was going to do all these different things. He was going to fund churches and God, he did all of it. And he proved himself faithful the whole way. He had a, last time when I heard him talk, his business makes 20, he makes $20,000 a day whether he's there or not. Whether he's there or not. Anybody want that? I mean, I'm not saying you want $20,000 a day, but wouldn't it be great if you have a residual income to where it's like, I'm prosperous even if I'm there or not? doesn't require this of me, but you have to prove yourself faithful. 
You have to prove yourself faithful. Faithful in the little. Well, when I get it, I'll give it. No, you'll never give it. You'll never give it. And people can give 50 bucks when they're making 500, but they can't give 500 when they're making 5,000. They choke. <laughs> or they can't give 50,000 when they're making 500,000. They can't do it. Can't do it. I've watched it time and again. God will bless it. And you know what he does? He takes you at your word. This is what's crazy to me. He takes you at your word. When you tell him you'll do it and you actually start proving it, he's like, yeah, I believe him. I believe him. And he probably knows the end from the beginning. He goes, well, they said it, so I'm believing that they're going to do it. <laughs> I've watched it. It will happen. God will bless you time and again. He will bless you. You have to attach your faith to the giving. When you give, you attach your faith. You believe God for something. Believe him a little bit more than provision. I'm believing you for promotion. I give by faith, Lord. I'm giving by faith. This is, I give to you to honor you. I give it to you to honor you. But you said if I would give, that I could prove you that you would give return to me, that you would open the windows of heaven. Heaven has windows, people. God says there's a windows. There's windows that he will open up to you. And from the window, he will pour blessing. That's what he said. And you keep God at his word. Lord, I'm giving and I give by faith and I stand in honor and I love to give. And whether you bless me or not, that's irrelevant. But I'm putting you at your word. You said you would do this. And then you make a deal with God. You don't know, I don't know if you know this. God's a deal maker. Come, let us reason together. He made a deal with Abraham. Negotiation. He likes to negotiate. I don't know why, but he does. So when you negotiate, he negotiated with, with, with uh, he was trying to negotiate with uh, Jacob. But Jacob wouldn't negotiate. And so the Lord left him. That was it. Or he's going to leave him. That was the story. Yeah. He likes to tell him. Write it down. My wife asked me the other day, what are you doing? I go, I have two things that I believe God's told me to do. I'm giving him a budget. I'm telling him what I want. I need this much money to do these things. If I could do it without money, I would. But I'm hindered by money. I can't go any further. I do as much as you can until you come up against the barrier. And we've done as much as we can in these arenas. And now the barrier is finances. I can't go any further without finances. And so now I'm submitting a budget. This is what I need. Do you know what you want? If you don't know what you want, he can't give you if you don't know what you want. Well, I want a million dollars. You need to go to the mirror and slap yourself in the face if that's your answer. That's stupid. Why do you want it? Where are, you, are you even in close to a position where that can happen? You know, I mean, it's just, it's like crazy. You can have a million dollars. God has no problem giving it. You're, some of you, your, your businesses are structured to where you can get a million dollar contract. There are people in the room. There are people that come to this church that have a business that's structured where that can happen. There are other people whose business is not structured for that to happen. In order for them to believe God for that, God will give it to them, but he's going to have to completely restructure the company. He's going to have to tell you, you're going to have to restructure the way that you're doing things and reconfigure the way that you're doing things, so you're going to have to leave the familiar. Oh, I can't do that. We've been doing business this way for the last 20 years. Well, then you better not believe him for a million-dollar contract because your business is not aligned to have it. That's the way he works. We want a million-dollar contract, but we don't want to change anything. We want to leave everything the way it is. Is your systems, are your systems functional to where you can actually do that? Is, or do you have processes in place where you can actually execute that? You know, may not have everything, but at least you have the, the versatility so your company is aligned in such a way that if that starts to happen, the versatility of the structure will begin to flow so that you can achieve that. If you don't have that, it's not going to happen. You're wishful thinking. And so when you believe God, one of the things he's going to start telling you is restructure your life. You're going to say, Lord, I'm believing you to get me out of debt. I'm Lord, I just believe you to get me out of debt. You know what he's going to tell you? Stop spending money. 
You want to get out of debt, Kevin? Stop spending money. That's a, well, I, I just believe God's going to give me the Reader's Digest check. That's what I think. And when I get the Reader's Digest check, then I'm just going to get out of debt, but I'm just going to keep on spending money the way that I spend money. I mean, it's like, it's, like, it's like crazy. I mean, I don't know if I'm making sense to you. This is how it works. God wants these things. We say you work in the workplace and then be a witness. All right, I'm going to close it up here, but I have to hit this one. This is important. Say this with me. Faith accepts no excuses. Abraham was 75 years old, and there was a famine in the land when God told him. Say it with me. He was 75 years old, and there was a famine in the land. There were no available resources, and he was an old dude. And God didn't accept any excuses from him. What's your excuse? He was 75. What's your excuse? He was in the middle of a famine. What's your excuse? God didn't accept excuses from Abraham. Do you think he's going to accept them from you? He doesn't accept excuses. So that is important. Faith, trust in the character and nature of God. I'm going to skip through this because I'm out of time. But I love you. And we're going to do this. I'm going to ask you some questions. Do you want the comfort zone? Or do you want the destiny zone? You have to ask these questions. You have to ask the questions of yourself. If you don't ask the question, God's not going to do it for you. You have to begin to ask this question, what do I want? What do you want? Do I want destiny or do I want comfort? What comfort wants is comfort wants safety and security. That's what comfort wants. Comfort wants safety and security. What destiny wants is significance. Destiny wants uh, uh, legacy. Destiny wants things that comfort doesn't want. So which zone do you want? Let me ask you these questions. Whose voice do you listen to above his? Here's another one. Where is fear and familiarity overriding your courage? Do you have a sense of calling? Yes or no? And what is keeping you from it? And here's my big one. What excuses are you using? And here's number five. What lies do you believe about yourself or about God's heart that prevents you from moving forward? And we're going to pray. Anybody want to pray? We're pray, pray? We're going to pray a dangerous prayer. Right? Say this. I love dangerous prayers. Dangerous prayers invite the Lord to shake things up and make things happen. And that's what I want. So let's pray together. Say, Father, I want a faith that grows. I'm not satisfied with the comfort zone. I don't want to be a spiritual wimp. I offer myself in devotion. I choose to listen to no other voice above yours. I choose courage over fear and familiarity. I give you Holy Spirit, permission to awaken my calling, to make it understandable to me, and to give me first steps. I give up all of my excuses, and I renounce all lies that have infiltrated my heart. When it comes to your character, your nature, your love for me, your purpose for me, and the identity that I have in you, I choose truth. You love me on my worst day. You are forever for me and not against me. My gifts and my calling, they are irrevocable.
I am a son or daughter of the highest. I will accept no identity that is beneath the one that you have placed upon me. In Jesus' name. You believe it? Come on. You know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to start speaking to you. He's going to start telling you. I'm telling you. You're going to hear this week. You believe that lie. You believe you're not worthy. What? I don't, I don't believe that. What are you talking about? I don't believe that. <laughs> He's going to show you where your fear is. He's going to show you these things, and whether you choose to obey them or whether you choose to listen to them or not, that's up to you, but the Lord is going to do his part. He's going to start talking to you. He's going to start showing you. He's going to show you through circumstances. He's going to show you through experience. He's going to speak to you. He's going to start showing you because you've asked him to do that. We have a prayer team available for you if you need prayer for anything, but I'm going to bless you one more time. This prayer that I pray over you is the prayer that God commanded Aaron to speak over the people. It's called the Aaronic blessing is what it's called but it's a wonderful way to close the service. And if Jesus likes it, then I like it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May he give you peace. And forever may you live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.